Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books podcast series, and I'm your host, Maddie Gobo. I'm the events manager here at Skylight Books in Los Angeles. Uh, just so you all know, we are open for in-store shopping right now, 11 to 7 on week weekdays and 10 to 8 on weekends. Yes, you wear a mask and socially distance and all that stuff. Um, we have a new website. I have been plugging it hard because uh, I'm so glad to be rid of our old website, which was terrible. Our new one is great. Um, and we have a fabulous new feature, which has all the pre-orders collected. So if you're looking for exciting new books coming out this summer, um, check out the pre-orders tab for some really excellent picks. All right. So today uh, we're going to be talking about bugs, one of my favorite subjects. I'm really excited to get into this conversation. Um, so today the featured book is called The Butterfly Effect, Insects and the Making of the Modern World. The author is Edward D. Melillo. And um, so we're going to get into this. But first, I want to just say a few words about the book, and then I'll give Edward his formal introduction. So The Butterfly Effect, Insects and the Making of the Modern World, which is out now from Knopf, is a charming and wide-ranging tour across time and around the globe of all the ways insects have shaped art history and been essential to our lives, from fashion to food, music and medicine to the worlds of business and scientific research. Humans have not only coexisted with but relied on insects in myriad fascinating ways for thousands of years, and we continue to do so into the present day. All right, so our featured guest today is Edward D. Melillo. He's the professor of history and environmental studies at Amherst College. He is the author of Strangers on Familiar Soil, Rediscovering the Chile-California Connection, which won the Western History Association's 2016 Cahi Prize, the most distinguished book on the American West. He was awarded the Mellon New Directions Fellowship in 2017. He received his PhD and his MPhil from Yale University and his BA from Swarthmore College. He grew up in Falmouth, Massachusetts, and now lives in South Hadley, Massachusetts. Edward, also known as Ted, welcome to the program. So happy to have you. Thank you for having me, Maddie, and thanks to Skylight Books for hosting this event. Yeah, this is going to be so fun. Um, so this book has just a wealth of delightful and fascinating information, um, and I was hoping you could give our listeners a little taste with a short reading. I would be delighted to. I'm going to read you just a short excerpt from chapter one. I'll start at the beginning here. In November 1944, Decca Records released a single featuring Ella Fitzgerald in the ink spots. Into each life some rain must fall skyrocketed to number one on top of the billboard charts in the United States 
and inaugurated a long-term collaboration between the First Lady of Song and the fabled record producer Milt Gabler. A century before this musical milestone, the Ottoman Sultan Abdul Mesud I founded the Hereke Imperial Carpet Manufacturer to supply elaborate silk rugs for his Dombace Palace on the Bosphorus. These extravagant carpets, among the finest ever woven, featured between three and 4,000 knots per square inch. Six decades earlier, on October 19, 1781, Brigadier General Charles O'Hara of His Britannic Majesty's Coldstream Guards donned his distinctive scarlet officer's coat, strode onto the battlefield at Yorktown, Virginia, and surrendered the sword of Lieutenant General Charles Cornwallis to Major General Benjamin Lincoln of the American Continental Army. A trio of more incongruous events spanning three centuries is difficult to imagine, yet these episodes share an astonishing feature. They all depended on the tremendous productive capacity of domesticated insects. The brittle shellac of Ella Fitzgerald's 78 RPM record, the gossamer threads woven into the Sultan's silk carpets, and the crimson cochineal used to dye the Brigadier General's jackets entered the circuits of global commerce as secretions from the bodies of tiny invertebrates. Women and men in rural corners of northeastern India, the Ottoman Empire, and southern Mexico painstakingly raised the lac bugs, known as Laca, the silkworms, known as Bombyx mori, and cochineal insects, Dactylopus caucus, that secreted the raw materials for these products. Unwittingly, we have inherited the legacy of human insect partnerships that yielded Ella Fitzgerald's shellac, Sultan Abdul Mesud I's silk, and Brigadier General O'Hara's cochineal. Six-legged creatures have been our unshakable companions and surreptitious roommates for millennia. The average home accommodates a remarkable profusion of insects. In 2017, following a five-continent, five-year examination of residences, ranging from urban high-rises to village bungalows, California Academy of Sciences entomologist Michelle Troutwine and her colleagues concluded, quote, our lives are completely mixed up with the bugs that share our homes. Every home you've ever lived in, from a rural Peruvian farmhouse to a studio apartment in Paris, is teeming with tiny life, end quote. In a related investigation, a team of scientists donned headlamps and latex gloves to comb through 50 homes in Raleigh, North Carolina. Scouring kitchen corners, crawl spaces, basements, closets, and air conditioning vents, they discovered more than 10,000 species of insects, along with myriad spiders, centipedes, millipedes, and other arthropods. This clandestine menagerie was blithely residing alongside its unsuspecting human hosts. While these findings intrigued some readers and spooked others, they were unsurprising to entomologists and evolutionary biologists. For the entirety of our planetary existence, we have dwelled with insects. We dine together and at times on each other, we travel in tandem and we sometimes share beds. Such relentless interactions uh, with insects are threaded through the human experience. During the spring of 1748, 16 year old George Washington accompanied a team of experienced wilderness surveyors as they trekked through the verdant forests of the Shenandoah Valley. 
the fledgling apprentice and future United States president was dismayed to find that his bed often consisted of nothing more than, quote, a little straw matted together without sheets or anything else, but only one threadbare blanket with double its weight of vermin, such as lice, fleas, etc. Although Washington's account evoked millennia of infested bedding, some of his European forebears had not regarded cohabitation with lice and fleas as a nuisance. At times, the act of hosting six-legged creatures on one's body epitomized holiness. The union of vermin and virtue was on vivid display following one of the most notorious assassinations of the Middle Ages. On December 29, 1170, four knights in the service of King Henry II of England murdered the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Becket, on the flagstone steps of the Prelates Cathedral altar. Becket's body lay in the icy church all night. The next day, in preparation for the burial, attendants removed a profuse assortment of garments, including a mantle, a linen vestment, a lamb's wool coat, several cloaks, a Benedictine robe, and a shirt. The innermost layer was, quote, a tight-fitting suit of coarse haircloth, covered on the outside with linen, the first of its kind seen in England. The innumerable vermin, i.e. lice, which had infested the dead prelate, were stimulated to such activity by the cold that his haircloth garment, an uncomfortable shirt worn close to the skin, quote, boiled over with them like water simmering in a cauldron, and the onlookers burst into alternate fits of weeping and laughter between the sorrow of having lost such a head and the joy of finding such a saint, end quote. Suitably, Beckett was propelled into the afterlife on the wings of a swarm. Thank you for that reading. Wow, there's so much in there. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot, lot to take in, but I had, I had, as you can tell from, from the reading, I had a lot of fun writing this. Yeah, this is my favorite kind of book, which is the kind that is just jam full of stories. And I think, I mean, the subject of the intertwining of human existence with insect existence is, I mean, there's so much there. I mean, they've been with us since the beginning. <laughs> um, my first question is, how did you decide where to start with this subject? Because you could have gone in a million directions. And um, I think the book, uh, the book does manage to create this, this beautiful kind of narrative um, out of just innumerable stories. Yeah, thanks. That's a great question. And I'm a historian, so I like to take things back to the beginning. And I'll, I'll take you back to my own beginnings in, in telling the tale of how I put this all together. Uh, my, my father's an ecologist and my mother is a historian. So uh, I simply intertwined two limbs of the family tree and somebody decided they'd pay me to do this. So I'm an environmental historian, which means I, I'm interested in thinking about how humans have interacted with non-human nature in the past. Um, and dinner table conversations as a child stimulated me to this end. And when I was about 11 years old in 1984, I took a course at the Woods Hole Children's School of Science in the town where I grew up. Uh, it's a town famous for its marine biology, but it's also got all sorts of other scientific stuff going on. And a local monarch butterfly expert named Becky Lash, to whom I owe a tremendous debt of gratitude, 
one day brought a monarch butterfly and it was a hot steamy day and a bunch of 11 year olds were kind of jumping up and down getting thirsty in a classroom waiting for what would happen next and Becky set this monarch down on a wedge of ripe watermelon and the insect inserted its proboscis into the fruit and began to take a long drink and in that moment, I had this kind of feeling of kinship with this non-human being. I was thirsty, I was hot, I was tired, and I could really sympathize. And so Becky, in many ways, launched this ship that became eventually became this book. I had no inkling at the time, of course, in 1984, that I would eventually write a book on insects and world history. Uh, another turning point happened in California, appropriately, given that this interview is taking place with an LA bookstore. It was in 2003, I went to the Monarch Butterfly Reserve at Natural Bridges State Park in Santa Cruz. And a, a young docent led us all down a boardwalk and we got to see several million monarch butterfly roosting on the eucalyptus trees there. And it was just a mind bogglingly awesome event that, that really kind of shook me to the core. And at that point I knew I wanted to eventually write something on insects. Uh, then it was really just a process of doing what I do best as a historian, collecting little tidbits and trying to figure out how the puzzle pieces fit together. And what resulted is this book, which is kind of an experiment in many ways with, with thinking through commodity history, the, the things that humans have traded in the past and how those have animated our societies and our cultures and our human interactions with each other and with the non-human world. So that gives you a little bit of the backstory uh, to how it all came into being, but I'll happily talk about more of that if that comes up later. Yeah, well, I wanted to kind of take a, a leap from this point and say, so you have monarch butterflies as kind of your totem, um, the, the kind of the insect that, it, that drew you into the insect world and then kept you there. Um, and notably, they are in the title of this book. Um, could you talk about how you chose this title and, and how you're applying it throughout the book? Absolutely. So, so the title comes from a lecture that the chaos theory pioneer Edward Lorenz gave in 1972. He was speaking to a group of scientists in Boston. And the idea of a butterfly effect is sort of the hallmark of chaotic behavior, namely that small causes can have large wide-ranging effects. And, and I'm trying to stimulate that idea in the minds of my readers as I talk about these tiny creatures who've had a really outsized impact on humanity, often in incredibly unacknowledged ways. Part of that may be that insects do most of their business in the world kind of out of view they may be behind your fridge or under your trash can or between the blades of grass in your yard, but yet they're so fundamental to both the beginnings of life. Of course, all plant sex is predicated on, on pollination for the most part, at least for flowering plants and insects are, the, are the, the big animal that does that pollination. And then also at the other end of life, decay um, is a process that's, that's fundamentally articulated by and, and governed by insects in many ways. And so I wanted to kind of find a way in the title to bring that outsized impact that insects have had to life. Um, it may be a little confusing for readers in some ways. There might be a bait and switch here that you think you're gonna be reading about butterflies and then suddenly you're reading about shellac bugs and cochineal insects and silkworms. 
but that was part of the fun I, I was having also in playing with with the title. Yeah, I, I like it as a as a Trojan horse title because I think you know many of us have these uh, understandings of like insects as having there are like good insects and bad insects. You know, there are like the friendly, the butterflies, and the ladybugs and all that. And then there are the insects we don't want to talk about, we don't want to acknowledge, but they're equally important. Um, and I think. I like the butterfly effect as a title also because of, you know, just thinking about the effects of climate change on insect populations and how massive those impacts are all the way up the food chain. Um, as insects are dying out, we are seeing just how vital they are um, in all of these other classes of, of creatures. Yeah. Um, so could you talk about the, the insects that you do focus on in this book and, and why, they, why they called to you? Sure, I'd be happy to do that. I did want to pick up on a point you just made, though, very quickly and say it at the at the sort of front end of our discussion, because it can easily be missed as we glorify all the wonderful things that insects are doing. Up to 40% of insect species are in decline and about a third are endangered. And uh, this is this is extremely tragic and actually um, could could bode very ill for, for the future of our species and for the planet. This is kind of a an insect planet on which we're really guests. There's some, entomologists estimate that there's some 10 quintillion insects living on the planet at any one moment. Um, and we're closing in on 9 billion of us. That's 10 followed by 18 zeros. I've got a seven-year-old and we've had fun writing all those zeros out on the page and we've needed to kind of spiral around to fit them all in. This is really an insect planet where we're the guests, but the insects are, are in real jeopardy at the moment, in part, as you mentioned, because of climate change and also because of things like habitat destruction and widespread use of, of insecticides that are, that are disastrous to these things on which, you know, so many fundamental processes are predicated. Um, but there's some encouraging stories at the heart of the book, and those are the ones you were you were mentioning. The, the first three chapters deal with three insects, one of which you may know about quite a bit, uh, the silkworm, which is actually a caterpillar, not a worm. So there's a chapter about silk and its history, but then there are two chapters. One is about shellac, and one is about cochineal. Um, shellac is something that is in us, on us, and around us at all times. It might be uh, covering your back deck. It might be covering your fingernails and your hair, unbeknownst to you. Uh, turns out it's in hairspray and fingernail polish. But uh, it was really, really important at the end of the 19th century because the Karyalaka insect, which is raised in India and much of Southeast Asia, produces a secretion that was used to make uh, the first generation of long playing records. And so when I was talk, reading that episode from the book about Ella Fitzgerald's uh, first records, those were made out of, out of a shellac composite and some other ingredients. And so the global transmission of sound for a total of almost half a century was predicated on this insect secretion. Um, now, today, it's with us everywhere you go. You walk into a grocery store, and it's highly likely that the apples you're looking at on those grocery store shelves are coated in shellac. Um, it's an FDA approved preservative to make things last longer and look shiny. It's on candy. Um, when, when your kid goes trick-or-treating at Halloween, which we didn't do because of the pandemic, but we hope to be returning to soon, uh, those candies are all coated in shellac to keep the moisture in and keep them looking shiny. And shellac is also on 
most of the medicines that you put into your body because it's an enteric coating to keep those medicines from digesting too quickly in the high acid environment of your stomach. Um, so we're eating shellac. It's on our nails and our hair. It's on our back decks. It's on our furniture. But people tend to know very little about it. Um, and it's still produced basically the same way it was produced for thousands of years in India and much of Southeast Asia. Um, and then the third insect commodity I talk about in addition to silk and shellac is cochineal, which may be far less familiar to your listeners. Um, it's produced also by female insects, uh, most of which are raised in central Mexico and now in the highlands of Peru. And it produces this carmine red dye that was much sought after in Europe. It became actually the most second most lucrative traded good in the Spanish empire after only silver. Um, because the color of red, of course, for virility and, and power is super important in Europe. And so for ecclesiastical vestments, royal robes, everyone wanted to get their hands on a red dye stuff that had tremendous color range and real fixative power. Uh, it wouldn't run, wouldn't wash away. And so this cochineal dye that's secreted by these female insects becomes this really important source of red for Europe um, from the 16th century onward. And I had a lot of fun writing the cochineal chapter because there's a kind of crazy story of biopiracy where this wild-eyed French botanist sneaks into Spanish Mexico to steal cochineal insects and abscond with them to Saint-Domingue, which becomes Haiti. And um, not many people have necessarily heard of biopiracy, but there it is on full display. I translated his journals from French and had a lot of fun chronicling that caper. Um, so that's, that's the first half of the book is about silk shellac and cochineal. And then the second half of the book, um, I look at what I call the hives of modernity. These resolutely modern institutions, uh, big agriculture, the future of food um, and, and genetic research that actually, as it turns out, are all built around, predicated upon insect bodies. Most of our knowledge of the human genome has been derived from studies done on the common fruit fly, Drosophila melanogaster. And, um, uh, I, look, I look into that quite extensively. It turns out that a lot of that research was done in my hometown at the Marine Biological Laboratory in Woods Hole by a pioneering scientist named Thomas Hunt Morgan. And not coincidentally, Morgan's wife, who was a great entomologist in her own right, Lillian Sampson, was the founder of the Woods Hole Children's School of Science, where I took my entomology class with Becky Lash and had my revelations about monarch butterflies. So there's a bit of symmetry to the way the loop closes there. Um, and then there are chapters on the importance of insects to, to pollination, something like one in every three bites of food that you or I eat on a daily basis was pollinated by an insect. Uh, and, then, and then I look into eating insects themselves and about 2 billion people on our planet at every, um, every day on a daily basis are eating insects. Uh, and how does, how does that work? How do we think about that? So um, those are, that's the sort of second half of the book. All right, so I do want to talk about eating insects because <laughs> um, I, in a past life, was a waitress at a Mexican restaurant where we served chapulines tacos, and that was my first encounter with eating insects. And I was very pleasantly surprised. They were delicious. They were crunchy. They were salty. They were, you know, if you didn't look too closely at them, it was just like eating uh, nuts or whatever, you know, like anything. Um, 
And I mean, now that you're saying all this about shellac, I'm thinking, well, we're all eating insects all the time. We just don't think about it. And of course, all of the insects that get sort of mashed in with other things. Um, wh what do you think, like, have you, have you done much research into kind of like why in particular in the US do we have this kind of aversion to thinking and talking about eating insects as a, as a real source of food? Uh, or do we have like, are there specific cultural reasons why there's so much resistance to thinking about insects as a food source here? Yes, and I like the way you framed that question because it really is, is a set of cultural assumptions. Most, most eating in general is learned behavior, uh, not biologically predestined behavior. Um, just like I, I teach many Chinese students, I, I happen to speak some Chinese and, and, and teach subjects that many Chinese students gravitate to. And many of them come to the United States and think it is so bizarre that we eat cereal and milk. What a strange combination, which seems so natural to us. In, in so many cultures around the world, insects are a fundamental centerpiece of cuisines. And I've tried my share of these, which I can get into and talk about my, my, my own preferences if we do want to go in that direction. But <laughs> I think the antipathy in our, in, in our society to that, and it's mostly in the US and Western Europe, is that many of the colonizing peoples who came to the Americas uh, were from very cold climates where few insects were available. Uh, most of the rest of the world that lives in the tropics, that's where the, the globe's population is concentrated, live in places where insects abound. And uh, they're, they're a logical food source. And there's all sorts of variety that you can get by adding insects to your diet. And in fact, many native peoples throughout the Americas had incorporated insects, not just as sort of famine foods that they ate in times of dearth, but as, as seasonings, as spices, as things to alter the kind of daily rhythm of cuisine uh, as delights. And virtually every culture on the planet, except those in Western Europe and, and um, some cuisines here in the United States, uh, were the holdouts here. Um, and that's beginning to change. I think you'd mentioned Chapulines and you and I were talking beforehand about how Safeco Field, where the Seattle Mariners play, uh, is now serving up hundreds of thousands of servings of Chapulinas. They've got a Mexican restaurant, Don Paquitos, on uh, in the stadium that serves that serves Chapulinas as part of their fare, and it's been extremely successful. And they're kind of like they almost taste like a, a corn chip coated in chilies and, and lime, and they're delicious. That's so good. Um, yeah, so good. Highly recommend. <laughs> yeah, so we'll both recommend those. I've I've had my share of of different insect-based fare over time. And, and I've got to say there's some that I like more than others, but you know, <laughs> that's true of cheese as well for me. So I'm not into the really stinky ones, but, uh, <laughs> but you know, it's, it, I, I've, I've tried, for example, bandongi are steamed silkworm pupa that are commonly eaten in Korean food. They're sort of a street food. And I had those at San Francisco's Koreatown. And they're a bit like a cross between a shrimp and a peanut. Mm. Uh, all right, all right. It was, okay. it was a little odd on my palate. I probably <laughs> wouldn't be rushing back to eat those, but but I can imagine that there are all sorts of things that I take as sort of part of my standard repertoire of taste that to somebody from a different culture are completely odd combinations that, you know, why would you ever combine peanut butter and jelly, for example, which seems so <laughs> natural to me um, in in other cultures. And it is worth noting also that you know, in biblical history, of course, John the Baptist is, is, 
is surviving on insects. He's eating locust and honey um, when he's in the desert. And so, you know, uh, you go back into kind of the, the annals of Christian piety and you'll find lots of insect eaters who are, who are basically um, entirely fed on, on insect products, so. Mm. Do you think there's a future in which the U.S. will catch up with the rest of the world in our insect consumption? Yes, I, and I actually think it's probably already here. Um, I'm not. I'm not a huge fan of, of Amazon. I like supporting local bookstores uh, like yeah. you. <laughs> but but if you go on Amazon and you just do a search for cricket meal, uh, what that is is it's basically freeze dried pulverized pulverized house crickets. It is in everything. You can buy cricket-based brownie mix. You can buy cricket-based pasta. You can even buy, you know, cricket-based biscuit flour. It's just ubiquitous. Um, you can find hundreds of products like that. And that's because it's extremely cheap and inexpensive to produce this high protein, high iron, high nutrient kind of substrate that can be put into anything. And it's rather innocuous. My seven-year-old has tried the cricket brownies and gave them two thumbs up. Uh, and so that's a pretty picky food critic to, to, for this to get past. Um, and I mean, it just goes to show something like one pound of beef in the United States takes a thousand gallons of water and two acres of grazing land to produce. Whereas a pound of crickets takes one gallon of water and about two cubic feet of space to produce. Mm. And just to think about that, you get twice the protein from the crickets for the same volume and you get more iron and more nutrients. And I just think we're bumping up against limits. Yeah. You yeah. know, some 70% of the world's terrestrial land is devoted to agriculture and livestock production. And you just, you know, we're gonna have a world with 9 billion people on it by 2050 and you just can't keep going the way we are. So it's almost an inevitability. And this is where everybody, you know, Bill Gates and Biz Stone, the co-founder of Twitter and Mark Cuban, which, you know, on Shark Tank, they're, they're all putting their money on cricket meal. So I don't think it's a question of if, it's just a question of how and, 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 um, and sort of the mechanisms of where is it going to find its way into our diet, not will it. All right. So you heard it here first, everyone go out and invest your money in cricket meal. <laughs> <laughs> I will I will give no other advising tips. I have no economic sense whatsoever. I'm a historian, but but that would be my one sure bet. <laughs> I, I think that is actually a very cool future. Um, you know, I think, yeah, that we have all of these land use issues here in this country because of agricultural production and thinking about what we could do with with the space that we have instead of reserving it for raising cattle or uh, raising other farm animals. Um, there, yeah, there's so much potential. Um, and the water issue, the water issue is one of the big drivers there too. It, it's, it's land as you're saying, but it's also, you know, fresh water supplies globally. That's where the limits are. Everybody is thinking about how are we going to do what we do with food production um, with, with limitations on water. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to talk a little bit more about um, the kind of research element and uh, the, the work of other scientists who have been um, discovering all of the capabilities of insects. Were there particular uh, researchers, scientists that you discovered in the course of writing this book that you find really inspiring whose stories you might wanna share? Well, I'm so glad you asked that question because that was one of the most exciting parts uh, of doing the research for the book 
two in particular that I would highlight. Uh, one is Charles Henry Turner, who was, was born in 1867. He was African-American. He died, I, th I think, in about 1923. Um, he was the first African-American to get a PhD in zoology from the University of Chicago. And he was the first African-American to get published in the prestigious journal Science. And uh, because he was black, he was unable to get a university job in the US and he taught high school for most of his career. He had no grad students, no fancy lab set up, but he did all of really the pioneering work on understanding bees as intelligent beings that make rational choices. Mm -hmm. And a lot of our understanding of the process of pollination on which so much of our food is predicated, I think it's something like half a trillion dollars of crops from the US um, are pollinated by bees comes from Turner, comes from um, this person who was the victim of, of incredible discrimination, but managed to publish these, these astounding papers based on experiments that he designed, really elegant experiments that he did um, in, in, in public parks, basically. And, and he created this legacy of understanding about pollination that has had lasting impacts on the scientific field of entomology. And so his story was truly remarkable. Also, in, in addition, another, another person who in her day and time was certainly um, discriminated against was Maria Sibylla Miriam, who was a 17th century entomologist. She left the Netherlands with her daughter in 1699 and sailed across the Atlantic Ocean to the Dutch colony of Suriname. And it was the first putatively scientific expedition across the Atlantic. Uh, and she was a single woman financed entirely by, she sold something like 225 of her own paintings. And she and her daughter just got on this boat, sailed across the Atlantic and by themselves uh, and with a few uh, servants and assistants took dugout canoes deep into Suriname from Paramaribo and then did these beautiful paintings. I wish I could show them to your listeners of insects. And they were truly remarkable, not only because she was a, a woman doing this in a time when women were not supposed to do this, but also because she was one of the first people to show insects in their environments, which may sound strange to your listeners, but previously, for those of you who know Albrecht Durer's The Stag Beetle, it's a big picture of a beetle on a blank white background, uh, famous, famous uh, painting. That's how most creatures were represented. Uh, without any context. And, and Maria Sibylla Mirian and her daughter, Dorothea, put insects within their environment. This was a really big deal because it showed this, this creature in its ecological context. Um, and the other revolutionary thing that, that Marian did is she showed the various life stages of an insect through its metamorphosis in the frame of a single image. Um, so going from egg, you know, to pupa, um, and then and then the cocoon and the adult hatching and what the adult looks like um, was really revolutionary because previously many scientists had thought that different life stages of an insect were actually different organisms. <laughs> and so it sounds wacky to us now to look back on that, but Miriam was a real pioneer, and she was a woman doing this at a time when when women had very few opportunities to be engaged in, at the forefront of the scientific enterprise. And she came back after a few years in Suriname 
she actually contracted malaria, a bite from a mosquito, ironically, um, but came back and then published her findings in a really beautiful book. If you if you get a, a chance to to take a look at this, much of her stuff is is on display at major art museums. But the metamorphosis of the insects of Suriname, and it it really revolutionized the field of entomology. So Turner and Marion of the two characters I came across in my research were extremely fascinating and, and I was captivated by both of their stories. Mm, so cool. I got to look up those, those drawings. Yeah. Um, so before we kind of start wrapping up, um, I wanted to ask you uh, a little bit more just generally about what, what is it that draws certain people to insects? Like what, what, what do you see in these insects um, that compelled you so much that you wrote this whole book about them. What, what do you want to impart to your reader um, at, about the importance of these little strange, scary beings that, that we don't understand properly um, as a general population here? Well, that, that, that's another great question. The end of the book, the epilogue of the book is about listening to insects. And I think part of my own journey in being so captivated by them is they're telling us a whole lot. And if we stop to sort of listen, there, there's some remarkable messages here, not just about disaster. I mean, you know, there is that. Um, insects are a great barometer of, of environmental health. And we've got that there. But there are also some other stuff going on. For example, my seven-year-old and I have been raising silkworms at home. They're very commonly kept as pets throughout much of Asia. And many of my students say, oh yeah, I did that as a kid when I was going up in Shanghai. And that was, that was extremely common, but we have been so fascinated to watch them go through their various stages of life. And you can see it sort of not like any other creature in real time in front of you. These insects increase their body weight by 10,000 times over their four to six week life. So you can watch them in the morning and then look back later in the day and they're bigger. Mulberry <laughs> leaves 10 times a day and we've got them in, in like a glass aquarium case. And um, they're gonna end up producing these little cocoons. We've seen them through one life cycle do this. And then they produce this filament that can stretch 3000 feet. One silkworm filament can stretch the length of 10 US football fields. And that just to me is so remarkable to think that then people have taken this stuff for thousands of years and woven it into this fabric that is so commonplace in our daily lives. You know, you open up a closet and you see neckties or silk dresses and you don't even stop to remark on the fact that a tiny little insect made a hammock and spun a cocoon and then eventually somebody unraveled that cocoon, made a thread and stitched it into this thing. And, and what that sort of says to us about our relationship with these creatures historically is, is super, super fascinating to me. Um, the other cool experiment, if you wanna do it with, with kids at home during the pandemic is uh, if it's warm enough outside, listen for the chirps of a cricket. Uh, and what you can do um, is you can count the number of chirps in 14 seconds and then add 40 to that number, uh, if you follow me there and you'll get a remarkably accurate reading in degrees Fahrenheit of the temperature outside. What? Yeah. <laughs> and so they're responding to the environment's temperature and they slow down when it's colder and speed up when it's hotter. Mm -hmm. And 
we have tried this twice with our porch thermometer and each time we got in within one degree Fahrenheit before it got cold here in Massachusetts of the accurate reading of degrees Fahrenheit and temperature. So count the chirps over 14 seconds, add 40 to that number. And I would bet, again, I'm, I'm now coming across as a betting man, but I'd bet on <laughs> cricket meal and cricket chirps. So it's confined betting, but um, you know, and, and it just goes to show what are insects saying if we're willing to listen. And many people historically have, you know, it was traditional in the Meiji era in Japan for couples to go out to many of the hills in Tokyo and they would bring picnic blankets, sip sake and listen to the insects singing, um, sort of insect concerts. And I kind of wonder where, where all that got lost in the, in the humdrum of daily life. And perhaps during the pandemic, there've been sort of, there's a lot of cognition of returning to the soundscapes that have been lost as people, you know, I've had friends in New York City saying, wow, I'm hearing birds chirping for the first time. And, you know, I think there's something analogous there in the insect world where they'll tell us lots of stories, but we have to be willing to listen. Mm, that's beautiful. That makes me think actually there is a cricket at Skylight Books or perhaps many crickets. Um, and with the store shut down over the summer, we started to hear them all the time. Um, and they were just having a great time among the books, chirping here, chirping there, <laughs> reading the stories. I'm sure after hours they were getting into the books. Um, but yeah, I, I love that. I think thinking about what insects can tell us, um, you know, there's so much as your book is showing in our culture that we wouldn't have without insects. We wouldn't have silk. We wouldn't have, we wouldn't have shellac. We wouldn't have the color red. Um, so there is this this huge world that exists that we just have to look at and listen to and and there's there's so much to discover in it and i think your book makes a great case for for all of the beauty of the insect world and um so thank you for writing it thank you so much this was a lot of fun this was so fun well before we say goodbye i wanted to just ask if there's anything else you wanted to share any other little tidbits you think would be fun um anything i didn't ask you about that you were burning to talk about yeah, we, co we covered a lot in a very short <laughs> amount of time. So I hope your readers will be intrigued and, and, and will pick up the book and, and have a look for themselves. Yes, excellent. All right, Ted, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Um, my guest today was Edward D. Melillo, author of The Butterfly Effect, Insects and the Making of the Modern World. It's out now, you can get it at Skylight Books. Thank you all so much for listening. Ted, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. I really enjoyed this conversation. And uh, now I'm going to be uh, Googling crickets for the rest of the day. Maddie, <laughs> this was a lot of fun. Take care. All right. Bye-bye, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon. I see.